Steve. Who's there? <laughs> it's Dan and Aaron. Aaron O'Rourke. Yeah. We're all here together in time and space. On that space-time continuum. Mm-hmm. You've been reading about these EM drives, the potential for folding space so that we can do hyper-speed travel. I'm not into parapsychology. It's not about that. That's, <laughs> those were, that was ESP drives. No, I was, I was actually studying electron propulsion drives. Really? Uh, a year ago. They, those are like up to three terabytes now. <laughs> Hey, listen, the one thing, cool thing is you no longer have to have an Adobe subscription to use one of those propulsion drives. This hey, is- you guys, I think I'm on the wrong podcast, actually. Uh. <laughs> this is the Welcome to Dulcimer Geek podcast. Emphasis on the geek part. Right. <laughs> yes. The only Dulcimer so far that's been in here is you saying the name right there. Right. <laughs> So what? Wow. So we've been gone for a while. I think it's worth to note we have two podcasts that we will soon be releasing that are from yes. before our trip to England and after our trip to England. But we we just wanted to get rolling again, right? Right. I suspect no one wants to hear about our failures. I know, but you know what? I decided to talk about it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. I have an instrument mic set up too, but you probably don't want that today. We, because uh, Aaron's here with me, we didn't set that up today. But that's we're going to get back to doing that. We had just started doing that when we when last we met. Yeah. Now we, the, you, something has changed here because Aaron is actually in Chattanooga with you, and I'm here yeah. in Nashville. Right. But speaking of one of the podcasts, that should we find the files that we recorded while we were in England, walking around in a horse pasture outside of. Uh, Darling, darling, Sue Darling's house, right? That's uh, that might be an interesting podcast because we were very happy and homesick. Well, it's funny because you know sometimes I, I, sometimes when you have a conversation with somebody, you're in your office or living room or your front yard, and you can't really walk very far. But we right. were actually in a horse pasture, right? R- right, and it was large. And we were walking, like we each had our own personal recording device. Right. And we walked all over the hills. It was like Sound of Music without, you know, the Sound of Music. And with crazy Mm. people. It was like the cast of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest does Sound of Music. (laughs) (laughs) So Aaron O'Rourke moved to Chattanooga. Yes. And um, we've also been working with you recently on dulcimerschool.com, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I think he's motivated both of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, he did because it was funny because I hadn't been shooting a lot of new material. And when I went into the studio, I was like, I don't know if I feel like doing this today. And I just thought of the, I, I could see the words in my head. I could see the letters Aaron O'Rourke. And I was like, I'm going to knock out four solid hours of video today. <laughs> cool. That's yeah, good. Very good. Well, that kind of healthy competition is can be good if you have people that I'm going to use the L word love? actually love each other. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes the people that hate competition have a really bad concept of what competition is, and they ruin it for all the people that have a good idea about what competition. That's interesting. Is. That's huh. my opinion because I've said it before. 
when I compete with Aaron, he's not, it's not like me against him. It's like there's a, a soccer game going on and Aaron's out there kicking the ball and I want to be on the field. And so in order to be on the team, you know, you got to practice, you got to get stuff ready. And I, for me, competition means there's teams and I want to be on the team, you know, and if you play dulcimer, you're on my team. Sure. It can, huh. it can add some fun to it. Uh, a little tangent from that. <clears throat> Aaron knows this. I just, just before we came in here to record, I came from a meeting with someone who I am running against. And you may not even know this. I'm running for town council in Signal Mountain. No, I read that in the <laughs> National Enquirer. I don't know Councilman. how I feel about it. <laughs> Councilman Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron, yeah. It's going to be fun. But anyway, I just came from this meeting. I've, I've met with the candidates that I'm running against. And uh, the one just pulled out. The lady I just met with isn't going to run. And it's no, uh, it's no good. It's, it took, that means I win. You mean you're going to be council member Dan Landrum? Yes. It, it, it's, it means an automatic win, and it just – I'm sad about it. Yeah. You've been real bummed. <laughs> yeah, because I was wanting the race, and there's something about that. Well, I've got to be on my A game, and I'm applying this back to music now. I have to – I mean, not that I'm going to say, well, I can just do whatever I want to do now. It doesn't matter, you know, <laughs> but there was that little bit of competition that made me think I need to be careful how I write because I'm – I'm writing across different ideologies, mm-hmm. people who come from different places. Uh, I don't know. It's not necessarily to be good to be the only game in town. Yeah, I mean that's another kind of competition, oh. you know. And I feel like here's another. Um, I mean, I don't. Yeah, the only game in town thing is silly. Um, I, I really believe. That we, the more active, like let's just talk dulcimer. The more active we all are, the more active we can all be. I really think that's true. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's say Aaron <laughs> called me up and said, "Hey, you know that jam tunes book you got? I want to do a jam tunes book too." You know. Now the the base reaction to that would be uh, internally, I might be thinking, "But I'm the one who did the jam book." No, 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 no. No, the truth is, we should all do a jam book. And that's what David Schnaufer told me one time. Um, I said, David, all the cool books have been written. You've done all the cool arrangements. You've covered all the cool songs. And he said, do them different. Do them better. Right. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I think I might, as far as competition goes, I might feel a little bit different. Let's Maybe. hear it. I want to hear it. Well, just in in this kind of context, um, I don't really. I I might be talking about something different, or I might be one of those people who, like you said, just has a really bad idea of what competition is. Oh no! Now I'm gonna. Try, I am gonna be open to you. I'm opening my <laughs> mind and heart. What do you got? Well, well, musically speaking, I know in in jams or when we sit down to play a duo or a trio and it's improvisational. Um, I know where you're going. Yeah. I think we've all been in some situation where we felt like it, a musical situation may have turned kind of competitive. Oh yeah. Mm. I get depressed. That's not good. I I get really depressed. I don't ever feel that. You never feel that? 
and even when I play with people who are way better than me, like in Nashville, you can end up on a stage at, at some jam session or open mic night, and then some famous mandolinist comes on stage. But you're okay. saying, what would make his attitude? You're saying well, somebody would be like showing off or trying to show actually, you better. Actually, to, to your point, Steve, and this might sound a little bit arrogant, but I don't get as depressed if I if I find myself in a setting of people who are better than me and it gets competitive because then I feel like, oh, this is I get to learn and kind of like mooch off of their <laughs> their musical tricks in some ways. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I realize that sounds kind of arrogant. No, no, no it doesn't. But, about, but, okay. but what's the example of somebody who's kind of competing <laughs> well, with you and it makes me, you sad? Me, let me set this up because it happens with Mountain Balsam players more. Let's say it's you it and Aaron. With Mountain more. That's it does. Good. You and Aaron. You're a and racist. A, and a player to be named later. We'll let whoever's listening to just plug in whatever third player they want to be. Yeah. Okay. The three of you guys could, you know, along everything's a spectrum. So from the left hand of the spectrum, it's like we're all in full competition and trying to show each other up. And the mm-hmm. far right side of the spectrum is we're all doing everything we can to make sure the other people look good. It's always going to be better as it goes towards that mm-hmm. right one as opposed to the left one. So, yeah, I get all that. But like when I get on stage with Aaron, we were um, the one in particular I'm thinking about is when we were at Unicoi. Uh-huh. First of all, I'm a little scared to play with you sometimes because I want to be good enough in the ways that matter to you. And I tell myself before I get up on stage, the only way this works is if you do your best and you go up there and have fun and you uh, you just play from the heart. And if that ain't good enough, that's fine. We can go from there. I can practice whatever. But, I mean, it's a scary thing getting up there with you. So I'm not thinking about competing. Mm. I'm thinking if Aaron does a kick butt solo, I want to do a kick butt one. And if he follows it up with a second kick butt solo that's totally different, I sure would like to have a second solo that's different. You mm. know? And I and I don't think when I I don't know. Maybe I'm not perceptive enough, but I haven't been in a lot of situations where I feel like the other person is is trying to show me up or something. Huh. But you might have. So, what's an example of that? Well, I, I would, I would absolutely hate to give an example. <laughs> well, um, you don't have to yeah. give a name or a place. Some, but, but on the topic of of what you were you were just saying, it it is kind of interesting. Um, when we're being when when we're on stage and we're doing something kind of off the cuff, I think I tend to think a lot more intensely about accompaniment than I do my solos. Um, because uh, to me, accompaniment is the bigger challenge, and it requires me to be a little bit more on. It's not. Come and, on. And, and intensive, intensively listening to you, and then executing on and my I end. hear you listening to me, and when I go to back you up, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. Yeah? If you get really quiet and I don't, then mm-hmm. I then I get 50 demerits, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I think you bring... In your fundamental attributions into this thing. So, if if Aaron, you need to use words that people like who don't have a master's degree in philosophy can understand. <laughs> neither one of us have a college degree, do? No, no, neither one of us do. No, 
Yeah, but you play I, one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Fundamental. Let's see which word's complicated here. <laughs> yeah. So Aaron and I are both bringing together some filter we see reality through. Exactly. Yeah. So so if Aaron comes in with this attribution that he applies to you that Steve is generally competitive when I play with him. Yeah. He's going to see competitiveness in you. But if he comes at the thing with you where I like playing with Steve because he's always listening and we make each other sound better, then that's gonna that's more likely to happen as well. But he only has control over his attributions coming into the scene. You know, if you're coming into the scene with Aaron, like, man, he's, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, Aaron tends to not like to play up high on the neck. That's not that true. That one doesn't really apply at it's all. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible example. <laughs> <was> terrible. <laughs> yeah. All right, I give up on that. Yeah. Anyway, I think we br- what we bring into those things has so much to do with the magic, whether or not the magic can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. It's good that we're talking this through, though, because I sense a little bit of slight different way of looking at it between. I don't know. The, between the like, two. I think we both value backing up. And taking a lead, and you know the the conversation, the musical conversation, whether or not I can pull it off well, that's, that's another hmm. question. <laughs> but the backing, like you're saying, the backup is more important to you than the solo. Come on now. Oh well, I'm not saying it's more important, but it's what Equally I think more important. intensely about. You're more focused on that. I feel like there's a lot more pressure on the backup than playing a fancy solo. I specifically think, I in, an, in an improvisationally both, based Both of them make setting. me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so what about Dan? Like, I know, um, I feel, I don't know. If, if I trust somebody, like, I trust both of you guys. So I feel like even if it goes rotten, as long as we talk about it afterwards or there's a comment made, that progress can, can happen to some extent. Sure. Yeah. See, here's the thing. People are listening to this podcast, and some of them are like, what are these guys talking about? Because <laughs> what it is, is you hear this, mate, like a lot of people talk like when you're in a band, it's almost like a marriage. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we're not in a formal band, but in a, in a, in a certain kind of uh, way of looking at it, we kind of are in the same circus. You know, we share the same stages. We're often there together. We're like a circus band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a lot of these thoughts and feelings we have, you know, it's, um, we, we are closer than I am with my plumber. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like when the plumber comes over, he's not thinking about what I think and feel and all this stuff. No. Now maybe you guys don't think at he all might, about that wait, stuff. Wait, it I might do. be a if you had a very sensitive plumber. <laughs> it's funny because I actually did just have a you really did. interesting exchange with my plumber. What, what happened? happened? What happened? Um, there was a gas leak in the house, and it was connected to the water heater. And he, um, we were just talking about setting the temperature on the water heater, and he he went into a very long rant about how uh, everyone's skin is different. And let's see, it started something like, um, now you take me, for example. 
I work with my hands a lot. I got I got thicker skin. I'm not going to get burned by this water heater, okay? No matter what you set the temperature at. Now you take someone who works in an office all day. Now he has different skin. Now he's going to get burned. Now you take you you take your wife or someone like that. She she might get burned because men and women have different texture skin. Now you take an accountant or someone someone like that. Now That's he has different texture make, skin. He's not even going to survive. Oh, oh, this went on for a really long time. <laughs> Did he a at really any long. point be like, now what do you do for a living and why are you at home at 10 in the morning? <laughs> no, I was just trying not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yes. if, I think I could see if your hands were calloused. No, I knew somebody once who had s- skin that felt like a, a cat's tongue. You know, so maybe, <laughs> maybe there's some truth to that. <laughs> So, so let's bring this back into the conversation. Um, let uh, let's say that plumber is somebody you're playing music with. Here's the thing about that plumber that Aaron met. He has that wasn't an improvisation for him. That's a story he's told before. He probably has told before. Probably oh. told it a bunch of times. Well, shoot, his that's dad weird because I feel like we got really close after that. <laughs> I don't believe you. So I suspect that he might have even noted some discomfort on Aaron and Nikki's face while he was telling the story. But once that story had begun, there might not have been any turning back. That can be a problem when it comes to playing with people on stage, too. Sure. What is this? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right, Aaron? I think so. I don't. So, like, someone has this thing that they do, and they aren't really listening to you. They're just looking for a place to drop in this thing that they do. Well, we do that. Like, Dan, when you and I talk, we both do that to each other when we talk. Sometimes. Yeah. I feel like I, I mean, as as much as I you know, like to talk about backup, I feel like I'm, I can point to times that I'm guilty of that as You're pretty well. Good, like certain, you care. Certain, well, no, I care, but like certain chord substitutions that selfishly I just like, and I want to say, like, okay, you're playing something in, in E minor, like a nice, you know, Irishy thing. And I go through my list of chord substitutions that I might do, depending on the melodic notes that you're playing. And I think, okay, I really want to try this here, but there's some part of me that's like, uh, this might just, this might not be the right setting, the right, the right place but you for do it. it anyway. I, I want to do it anyway, and sometimes I regret it immediately. Well, sometimes <laughs> you're taking a risk, and it pays off. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we do playing lead or backup is sometimes you've got to be a risk taker because I feel like that's when we discover new things. Well, sure. I I just hate doing that on someone else's set when I'm playing accompaniment for them. I know what you mean when all of a sudden it's like, I think a B minor would go here, but then all of a sudden you play an F sharp minor at the same time as me or something. Hmm. Well, so... If Aaron's real thing is listening to whatever it is you're doing and trying to follow it, I haven't met anybody I trust more than him. Oh, really, that's nice of you. Yeah. Thank you. Just, I, I didn't mean to surprise you. <laughs> now he's good at it. Uh, I feel that when you and I play, Steve, every now and then, because we usually talk about it when it's done, we alpha male each other a little bit too much. I think you think we're doing that. I don't think I'm doing that. You don't? 
So it's just me. I think there's some fundamental attribution. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan, when when you and you're I, probably play, right. you're probably right. No, no. What Aaron said, I'm gonna. Yes, well, I no, agree. We know that's. Can we? Oh, really? We, instead we of fundamental attribution, can we just say FA or FA for short? People might confuse that with the interval. Well, it's called the. <laughs> it's it's in logic. It's called the fun, fundamental attribution error. I know, it's, and it's where when you go into a situation, you put these attributions on something mm-hmm. incorrectly and therefore all the decisions you make after that are there's a good chance that you aren't seeing a clear picture of what's really happening that's right you you're I, filling in and i think that does matter when you and i play together and i'm glad we're having this moment yeah right well now. this is a good so you when we play first of all i have great respect for you so when we are when we go do a gig, you know, we usually haven't rehearsed much. So this this is going to mean that you're going to probably be the leader. And I just, I just need to follow you best I can. I mean, when we did all those Christmas gigs together, you already had your Christmas thing down for the most part. So since we didn't rehearse or didn't, we hardly rehearsed at all. You had your thing going on. I had to accommodate your thing, which I'm not saying is a bad deal. I know that sometimes I would take the lead, but mostly when you and I play, I don't feel confident enough to try to alpha male you. Um, Interesting. Yeah, because I'm just hoping I don't screw up the chords. And um, I don't know. I'm just hoping I can survive and you're not going to hate me when it's over. (laughs) I just like that you guys are using alpha male as a verb. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it is. Well, now. here's yeah. a real problem. For the last three to four years, I, when I meant to say alpha male, I've been saying meta male. And so I would be talking to Dan oh. and I'd be like, dude, you're a meta male. And you would get this look on your face like you're trying to apply what meta means. You're like, am I a meta male? What is Steve talking about? <laughs> yeah. And I think three or four years, I should have been saying alpha male. Uh-huh. But... um no, I, I think when you and I have played, there's been some really cool stuff happen. <laughs> oh, and most of the time when we get feedback, that's the kind of feedback that I live for. It's been when we are listening to each other and we've done something that neither one of us expected and we sort of let it go where it was going to go. Uh, that thing that you and I did a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago when you were here to record Dulcimer School yeah. uh, that we both shared on Facebook, that was really cool. And we need to do that more often, where we both just sit down and kind of brainstorm together and build stuff. That was so... I slept like a baby that night. It was cool. I liked it. So satisfying. Um, I don't know. I mean, the most fun I've ever had playing with anybody is with my two kids. Yeah, sure. And they weren't listening to me a whole lot. I mean, there was something else being fed in that, though, right? Yeah, I mean, so every situation. I've watched really you listen to your mom, Steve. When like the stuff that you've done with your mom is really good because it's it's interesting because you have to listen to her because she she can't play at the caliber that you play, and you don't want to make your mom look bad. <laughs> no, and if I step out a little bit, like Aaron was talking about a substitution or something, if I'm going to step out with my mom or if I'm going to take the lead. In my mind and heart, she's got the lead the whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, 
you know, and Dan, you and I are complicated because we shared an office together. You know, we we had plenty of times where we laughed together. We had plenty of arguments together. And sometimes my, <laughs> when we would go do a gig, my less flattering personality characteristics, which I would usually hide around Aaron with you, I was more likely to, to let him fly. We're a lot like brothers. A little bit. Yeah. So when I was talking earlier about how people talk about bands or a marriage, it there is a certain kind of intimacy, a strange kind of thing you mm-hmm. can't put your finger on. I'm sure somebody could write a book about it. I wouldn't want to read it necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, is this too introspective? Uh, well, it's making me want to stop and think about it rather than talk because I think it's good stuff. We're on, we're on to kind of the essence of is the uh, sum greater than the parts well i think the i think that's an obvious question but the answer is not always because <laughs> sometimes the parts right. just don't fit right you know right uh, and that's what we're always looking for and these festivals throw us together sometimes mm-hmm. where we're, we're also looking at our individual marketing goals and things and and i'll i'll tell both of you guys straight up it's Never bad for me to play with Stephen Seifert or Aaron O'Rourke, ever. Well, probably not. Well, I mean, from a marketing standpoint, (laughs) unless we just get in a fight on stage or something. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back to this. You're not going to like this. Now, you're one of the, Dan, you're one of the best people, hammered-wise, I've ever played with as far as listening and bringing your volume down and stuff. But I still say that for you to play... When you play at a whisper, I still have to play harder than I'd like to. Really? I find I have to stay in the top third of my dynamic range when I play with a hammer dulcimer. Even when they're in the bottom third. And what this means is, is I never get to do my delicate stuff. Now, I hear when you guys play, maybe, I feel like I hear more of that. So it might be in my mind. But what do you think, Aaron? Well, is that the case even on the uh, the newer dulcimer? What's that mean? Like, like on the when you came over a few weeks ago, and you two played together with Dan on his carbon fiber instrument, because I notice a big difference uh, with cleaner, the new instrument. Maybe less. It's a. He, I've noticed Dan that you can play a lot softer and still get and, dynamic range. And I feel like and um, tone. Yeah, and I feel like I am. Um, like I'm, I'm a little bit quieter than than you are, Steve. On mountain, although Dulcimer. you were loud one day, I was there. I forget where, but you were loud that day. Oh, was it in <laughs> Everett? Yes, you were loud in Everett. Yeah, that's because that's because Rick Thumb uh, asked many times <laughs> for me to play yeah, that's louder. Because I was like, that's why funny. can't Aaron play louder with me? <laughs> I don't oh, wow. want. Please don't put that rock back down. Keep no, this see, one on its I, back. I, I, I okay. So I can this. appreciate what you just said. You don't want to okay. play louder. Like when I've when I was playing with Dan when we did that video where we kind of put together that little um, that tune or whatever. Mm-hmm. Here's what happens when I play with an orchestra. I can't hear myself, and I I can't even hardly control this. I just start playing harder, and I even start fretting harder, which makes no sense at all. So when I'm with the orchestra, the less I can hear myself, the quicker my hands wear out. When I'm backstage working on the hardest licks, I play them with ease. When I get on stage with the orchestra, I can't really hear myself as well. 
and I can I don't seem to be able to control it. I start wow. cre- fretting harder. I strum harder, and I get to those delicate hard licks, and my fingers are worn out. Kit, mm. Kit, I want to interrupt you, but please continue after this. I wonder if that's uh, something I've noticed that I do, and this happens with orchestras, or it happens just with any performance. It's when I start at the beginning. Sometimes I'm a little bit excited, and I set the tone and then you feel like you got to keep it and then i feel a little bit like i've got to keep it especially with a sound really man that just took a nap after he heard you start that's right so you set the tone so i try to be conscious to always make them think and that i'm going to be i try that to they do can't hear me i want them yeah, to think i'm i'm quieter than i'm gonna be that's right hmm. Well, I don't know if I said that right i want when i start to play i want them to set the level and then when they go for their little nap not all of them do that, by the way. Then uh, I'm going to actually get a little louder. Or no, no, I said that backwards, didn't I? No, I've done both. I've done both. <laughs> so sometimes when I play with people, I want to be able to get louder during my solo. Sure. So w- during the sound check, I play softer than I'm going to play later. Okay. Mm-hmm. But but I also do the opposite when I'm at the orchestra. I know that I'm going to have a tendency to play too hard. Right. Oh, this is too complicated. No, it's good stuff. So one practical thing that I do is I'll, I've done this a lot and I think it works is if it's, you have to trust the sound guy, whether or not you trust them, but it's good that they have enough information from you. And so I'll generally tell them there are going to be times when I get really quiet and you may be tempted to turn me up, but I really want that quietness because I'm trying to, trying to get the audience's attention and I'll get louder. We need a loudness meter in front of us and a volume pedal for our foot. Yeah, if we had, yeah. if we were playing electric instruments, we could do that, right? Consistently, you know, and have tops and bottoms. Uh, I heard uh, John Prime went to a John Prime concert about a month ago. That's cool, and <clears throat> he sounded so good at the I beginning. Know. I watched when, a recent wait, concert of his when he was starting out, but as he got more excited. For two-thirds of the show, his guitar was distorted. Wow. And no one ever touched it. And that bugged me. So I think for the sound guy, they ought to let you get as quiet as you want to get. But they need to be really careful because there's nothing you can do about distortion. Only the sound guy can do that. Sound person. Sound person. The audio engineer. We're assuming these are all males. The the sexless audio yeah. I hey, if I went to a gig and it was a female Wouldn't audio that be engineer, fantastic? my I, my identity <laughs> recognition would be yeah. I bet this person's going to pay attention. Can we talk uh, briefly? This might not be a terrible idea. Now we've all had good sound men. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm oh, talking yeah. about. I've had many good ones. Sometimes I probably had good ones, but I couldn't even appreciate or know about it because I'm on the wrong side of the speakers. Right, right. But um, I, I would like to share a, a bad experience. Okay. And this is, <laughs> this is the most common. Is you've got, you got a sound guy who doesn't want any advice and... And and when I say advice, I mean things like, hey, my instrument's kind of quiet, just let, giving you a heads up. And then you start to feel a defensiveness. And the, the, the highly defensive sound man is, 
is one of the most frustrating things in the world. And if you've ever been around a couple that doesn't get along at all, or if you've been around a 10-year-old who talks disrespectfully to his mother, (laughs) I feel like there's sound men out there that talk like that to the artists. And maybe maybe they've just been through too many situations where everybody's uh, taking advantage of them. They're not being paid well. They're not respected. But do you guys know what I'm talking about? The highly defensive sound man. The HDS. <laughs> the HDS. Yeah, very much so, I, I think. Um, What's your strategy for coping in that situation? Um, it's, <laughs> it's evolved <laughs> quite a bit. The, the one that, that I remember, uh, that, that really sticks out to me was, uh, one year at a, at a folk festival and it was a, for, for me anyway, it was, it was a really big deal. Um, so there were several thousand people in the audience on the main stage at night. I was really nervous. I really cared about the set. I really wanted it to go well. And I was playing with a band and I, talked to the stagehands, talked to the sound guy ahead of time, felt like I had a really good interaction with them. And, uh, and I said, Hey, I'm going to apologize in advance. I have a really inconvenient instrument to mic and do sound on. And I said, I'll be the quietest instrument on stage. So if possible, I really need the hottest mic up there. Yeah. And um, I just want to make and- a point that you have honed. I don't, I want you to keep going, but you've honed this ultra politeness an expectation <laughs> that you might be running into a hds yeah <laughs> well they were like oh hey cool no no problem and and it was all good get on stage all the other instrumentalists have like an sm81 or some other condenser mic and they right. put a 57 on yes oh no. not even a beta <laughs> and i just looked and said i don't think this is going to work. And we had this back and forth for, I I don't know, about two minutes on stage until, um, another, another sound guy came up and, uh, and said, is is there, or another one of the stage hands came up and said, is there a problem? And I said, and I just as quickly as I could repeated the same thing that I did before. And they said, Oh, no problem. They got another SM 81 out and it was, it was all good. Sure. Totally fine. That's a good mic for that situation. And the, the SM 57 is not right. It's not that you're anti sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I think, you know, it reminds me of when I was at summer camp as a counselor, believe it or not, Dan, you're not going to believe this. I was one of the coolest headed counselors for the boys. This, I know you don't believe this, but they ended up starting to put the trouble kids in my cabin because I could handle the, the troublemakers. And so I kind of was doing really well with that. But then I started to get tired. I got tired. I started to run into... Um, I just started to feel worn out, disrespected. And at one point, I ended up losing my cool a little bit, and the cabin counselor that was in there with me, who was like a counselor in training, he said, Steve, dude, he took me aside. He said, why don't you go for a walk and chill? I've got this. And I don't know why that just came to mind, but I'm thinking of a sound guy who's underpaid, overworked. And when I say overworked, I don't know if anybody understands. That guy might have been sitting at the board from 8 a.m. until 11 at night or 1 in the morning. Mm. Well... I did church audio uh, for a great organization, Signal Mountain Presbyterian, here on Signal Mountain. 
and they paid me really well. I did it for a few years. It so it's not even just a matter of pay. Sometimes it's a matter of you're in an unwinnable situation. <clears throat> and no matter what happens, people don't look at the source of the problem, which most of the time is the person at the thing, the mic. They're not going to blame or, the room or the equipment or the person no. at the mic. <clears throat> or the fact that you couldn't get them. You've told them 15 times in board meetings, this situation isn't going to work. You have to do this other thing. They're going to look at the sound man. They look at the sound man with the exact same disdain that they look at the poor young mother whose baby is crying on the seventh row. You're right. What's wrong with her? Can't mm. she control her? Child? <laughs> That's right. It's just not fair. And it's a situation you realize, wait, this is all backwards from the way it should be because they should be being nice to me because I really am paying attention uh, and trying to work with what I can. So the sound guys, and, and I'll just give you one little anecdote. If, the, the you know the classic feedback problem uh if someone is too far away from a microphone i develop this habit of i turn their mic down right as opposed to turning it up and they'll scoot in a little if they're if they're listening sometimes they're not listening to themselves but generally the audience will let them know uh, right and i deve- you, uh, we're on we're doing a podcast so you can't see it but if people looked at me and you know when that was happening i'd go and show them, you know, just got to make this face and show them, hey, they're too far away from the microphone. Uh, so there's some things that a sound person can't fix, and they're going to get blamed for anyway. They're going to get blamed for it all. And also, that, that board meeting where you say, this is what we need to buy, this is what we need to do to the room, or whatever, This we need to do sound checks, whatever you say, they're going to have, I'm just imagining another sound man later when they're relating oh, the story saying, oh, yeah, that guy, mm. he should be able to do a good job with what y'all have. Isn't that true? Mm. Yeah. It's a tough world. I think it's the engineering world just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think engineers are somewhat hold their knowledge close to their vest. And, you know, and it's and it also is a creative world as well. So anyway, I just said all that to say I'm on the side of the sound guy. And I think I am too. I know. But I also know I've angered sound people. I watched you anger somebody once. I watched the entire inter- exchange of, of words. The guy got so mad at you, and you didn't. I don't believe you did anything but ultra politely, you know, ultra politely, not tell him what to do, but tell him what you normally do or need, you know? Yeah. And I just think you need to know that's going to happen. Well, I've, I've seen it an, a lot. You know, sometimes when you don't want somebody telling you what to do, you take on, well, uh, uh, a husband could do this to a wife. Uh, He could get super grumpy. I don't want to, you know, he doesn't, he just turns into super angry grump, hoping to intimidate you into shutting up. Right. Hmm. But yeah, I'm on the sound of this. The sound man is, is such an integral part of the performance. Well, yeah. That's right. But still, for you <clears throat> as a performer, once you start to play, no matter what's going on with the sound, if you're focusing on that, you're going to make your playing be worse. So, Oh, yeah, because you, you quit relaxing, you come out of the zone. Yeah. Hmm. So it always has to be, uh, I'm just going to play. Now, think of this. Here's an idea. There's, a, um, a, like there's one festival. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. Um, all the performers got about 
an ad, I don't know. I think they all got about eight hundred apiece, and then I found out the sound man had been paid forty eight hundred dollars. Now, part of me says, all right, the guy has to own the equipment. He's got to get it all there, possibly in a right. truck. He's got to be on call. He's going to be there at 7 in the morning to 1 in the morning. Uh, maybe the guy definitely deserves to get more money than the performers. But, you know, I don't know. What do you think of all that? Well, when we did the Chattanooga Dulcimer Festival, the best one I think we had, which was down at Memorial Auditorium, down in the community room down there. You were in that one, Steve. Yeah, we that had, was uh, great. And we had, uh, I hired the best sound guy I knew, and it was expensive. Yeah. But I had no worries. <laughs> it was so, so nice. You know, he was into it. Uh, but it's almost yeah. like we're saying, I don't know. Maybe it is a harder job. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's an un. It's a pretty awful job. But you know, also, if you grab the best sound guy in town, he's he's used to working for large acts who pay a lot better. And if you want that guy, you're probably just stuck with paying what he's used to pay, getting paid, which is very different than what a Mountain Dulcimer player is used to getting paid. Right. Mm. Well, while we're on this subject, all three of us now own Bose sticks. Yeah. Isn't that mm-hmm. true? And I know quite a few other performers who do as well. So, Dan, That's you've got made the- that better. So yeah. there's two Bose sticks, and I think of this a lot lately. And Aaron, I want to know what you think. The, there's the big one mm-hmm. that's three grand. There's the le- the more portable one that looks similar that's a thousand. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I think they all sound fantastic. But do you think the bigger one sounds noticeably better than the little one? It sounds a thousand dollars better, not two thousand dollars better. I think you're right about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it it. I'm going to knock $500 off of that value in just the weight of the thing. The weight's a killer. But Aaron, yeah. you've got the, you and I both have the $1,000 bows. Yeah, we so have the I. compact. Yeah. Did you right. get rid of your big one, Dan? I have, I have the big one also. Because when we would do gigs sometimes, you would be like, man, I really want to use the big one for this, but I'm just, I don't want to haul it around today. Yeah. It's, yeah, that happens almost all the time. It's got to be more about the playing than the than the gear. But and if, if yeah, the little one, Aaron, the little one, when I got in with the orchestra, mm-hmm. I loved everything about using the stick with an orchestra. It it makes my sound emanate from my location without putting something ugly on stage. You know, you just got the thin sure. black column. But I was at the top of my volume without feeding back and they wanted more volume from me just and so i felt like man did i make the wrong choice in getting this you know what so there's where the larger one you ought to yeah we'll talk about this after the show i guess but we ought to figure out a way to kind of use the larger one that i have as community property and we all have that for well for when we oh, need that's it that's a good idea because what would have happened if you had had the larger one at the same volume they would have perceived it as being louder because it has the array in it. There's many more little speakers. There's many more little speakers and they're slightly larger. And the way, the way it throws is better. There's all kinds of things that are better about that. Yeah. I mean, I I wondered why if in your situation, I might've used the small one. So for those people we're looking, if you want to look at these things, if you're listening to this podcast, just go to the Bose website and look up like the L2 and the L3 and the smallest one, you'll see the prices, is the one that we're talking about, and then the larger one, basically. The smallest one, 
on the speaker part is only about a foot long and it goes on the, the top of two plastic stackable pieces that put it up high. Boy, the wait, larger wait, wait. The, one, the, the bigger thing is on the bottom. The bigger one has them all the way from the bottom to the oh, top. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So in your situation, I probably wouldn't have put it on the tower. The smaller one, I probably wouldn't have stacked it. I would have kept it down in the base so that it was coming right from you. So then any mic that they used with you would have also picked up some of that. And see, I was using a mic too. And yeah. here's a problem. I was my own sound man. And I hate that when you, when I have to play with an orchestra, a 30 minute piece and I'm the sound man. That's not a good And thing. I don't know what mm. it sounds like out in the hall. And, and, and all of a sudden when the hall is full, you got to be maybe louder than, than sound check. But yeah. here's this Bose thing. I think it's good. We talk about this for a minute. It's the best I've ever felt playing with people. One time, Dan, I know we did this with Aaron recently, but the the one that really was successful, I thought, was when I first came to your Signal Mountain Festival, and everybody had a stick up there. Okay. Or there were two or three of them. There was a time we had like five. They were all behind us. But we could all, we had them set up the way you're supposed to, and we could all hear each other, and the audience could hear us, and it sounded good. And that's the thing I think that's unique about these, if you got it in the right situation, supposedly... If it sounds good, if every person on stage has their own bows stick, if we adjust the volume so we like the way it sounds on stage to us, supposedly the audience is going to get the same effect. That's right. They're certainly not getting overpowered. It's the best I've ever felt when it's done right. Well, mm-hmm. let me ask you this. You're, you're watching a concert. You guys, would you rather go to a concert and say, seriously, which would make you feel worse? It was too loud or it was too soft? Too loud. Steve? Too loud means I'm leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Because I got my so, left eardrum cuts out when it gets too loud. Yeah. So if we err, we should err on the side of mercy toward ourselves mm-hmm. and the audience. Yeah. Playing as... Um, in situations where I've been with a group playing as background noise, uh, the one thing I always felt real passionate about with sound was that um, there's a pretty big difference between someone coming up and asking you to turn it up versus asking you to turn it down. <laughs> or take a break. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and we have to protect our ears and everybody's into that. When I go to a concert, I usually take earplugs. Yeah? and Yeah, I did the John Prine concert I listened to with earplugs in. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it sounds better almost always. Yeah, you know, even <laughs> if it's not the fancy ones, even it, like some of these earplugs, they mold to your ear and they actually allow a certain amount of sound through. Right. But even with just plain old foam inserts. That's right. So I I do these concerts sometimes in town with my friend Brady Sharp. We've got a a group called the uh, Voight Kampf. <laughs> what does that mean? Voigtkampf was the test in Blade Runner. That might be uh, Voigtkampf calling. <laughs> You're being sued. Voigtkampf is the test in Blade Runner that they would give to find out if somebody was a human or an android. It was a test. <laughs> <laughs> I like great, it. Great band so, concept. <laughs> anyway, um, we do a lot of noise music, and some of the guys, like there was a guy there a, a month and a half ago or so, 
He's got a pickup on a trumpet, and he plays it through a Marshall stack. And he's got it as loud as he can get it. And after you think that it can't get any louder, he screams at the top of his lungs into the bell of the trumpet. Now, it's, I feel like I've been around the loudest music that you can be around. And having the earplugs in, I can focus on the quality of the music and not, right. you know. It's often too loud. I'm not well, talking about just yeah. the Marshall stack. There's so many, and we all know if a sound guy's ears are shot from 40 years of doing this, he might be turning up loud. But he should have a SPL meter or whatever. What are those called? I know. I, well, just the gain, just the input gain is where I could clearly hear where John Prime was distorting. I was looking from where I was sitting in the front row of the balcony to see if I could see the little light peeking <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the board, but I didn't have a good enough view, but I suspect it was. I was, going, I was telling Angie, the guy just needs to look at the light. <laughs> You know, it's bad. But I think another thing that happens with those plugs, even the cheap ones, like you said, Steve, is it keeps the, the I think it's called cilia the, the in your ear, actually lay down when they become exhausted. Is cilia Maybe. what's on a paramecium? Maybe. And I think it's, I think they call it, I could be wrong. They're little this. hairs in our ears. They're little hairs. Little hairs. That's a good name and for a band. Little ears, <laughs> hairy little ears, dibs. <laughs> but anyway, they begin, they get exhausted and they start to kind of just stop functioning. And so the quality of what you're hearing is going to get worse, even if the volume goes down after it's been loud. That's ear fatigue. Mm. And so if you put earplugs in at the beginning, then you're probably better. You're probably better off, even though it's maybe a little muffled, but your, your sensors are. Because it takes like an hour or more for your ears to settle down. I remember going to super loud concerts, like heavy metal, when I was a kid. And you would come home and you couldn't hear. Right. Yeah. Total ear fatigue. But Like people may have, here we are about an hour into this podcast. <laughs> well, let That's me a see. combination of ear and mental fatigue. Here, I'm, one good thing is Aaron is good about using his, his uh, dynamic range, like... Okay, I'm going to say Aaron is often, <laughs> of his 100% volume, he's somewhere between 20 and 80% at any given time, most of the time, where yeah. I tend to be 40 to 100. And I don't think the instrument sounds as good when you operate at the very peak of its dynamic range. And this is really a big deal. The strings buzz. When you hit strings hard, they, they go sharp. And the different strings yeah. go sharp differently because they're different gauges or tensions, mm -hmm. I guess I should say. So here's what happens, especially when I can't hear myself. I play too hard. I'm buzzing. I'm a little out of tune. I always do this with dulcimer clubs. I just say, if you, let's just play a little quieter. It instantly sounds a lot better. And the timing gets better. Mm -hmm. um, now, the problem, the reason, one reason I'm used to playing on that upper end of my dynamic range is... You know, we get into these situations where we are the quietest instrument on stage for Mountain Dulcimer, and um, I just can't hear myself. And the sound guy's struggling with feedback because every time, and so I'm on the mic, right? Mm -hmm. But every time he tries to turn me up, we get a little feedback issue. I, f I feel like I'm always playing too hard. Mm. Well, just real quick to Dan's point uh, about timing usually gets better when people 
quiet down a little bit. Um, one thing that, that tends to go with that is I'm sure both of you have probably noticed when you, when you play louder, people tend to speed up as they dig in more when they, when they play quieter, the tempo usually slows down a little bit. It's one thing to be conscious of. So when I play harder, I get worn out quicker and I drag. Interesting. Because I'm playing harder than I do at home. And so oh. it's like what's normally okay for me to do, all of a sudden now my muscles are burning. And that's when you guys hear me drag. The two times I drag is when I'm playing too hard and also when I'm thinking too hard. Well, okay. <clears throat> As a novice, I'm going to represent others in the audience who may be where I am as far as mountain dulcimer goes. Mm-hmm. Aaron's been giving me mountain dulcimer lessons and we're going to do one as soon as this podcast is done, which is really cool. So he's had me practicing basic bum ditty stuff, but like da, 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 da. It's so hard for me to go that slow because I'm pretty capable of, of strumming at a faster tempo. Okay. So in my practicing all of this stuff, I find that as I speed up, the actions need to be larger for it to not feel hard. And I can't imagine that as you guys speed up and you're trying to narrow that pick down like in a flat picking thing where you're trying to go that there's not a lot of tension that starts to take place in your arms. And I could see why that would cause you to slow down, I guess is what I'm saying. Because I'm looking. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to maybe getting to the point to where I can be as relaxed as I, when I speed up and it messes my tempo up. And when, and the obvious solution to my tempo gets messed up, I shouldn't say tempo, my timing and accuracy and timing, you know, like if we were looking, charting it out, gets worse as I speed up right now with the mountain dulcimer. The obvious answer to that is, well, then slow down, dummy, you mm. know, until it's right, and, which is what I have people do in the hammer dulcimer. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're, I think what you said is really accurate, particularly with flat picking and that you're working with a smaller space. And I noticed that's where I tend to find myself tensing up the most. Um, particularly if I'm flat picking Irish tunes is when I find I get the most fatigued with those ornaments. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's, what um, yeah, that's where I'm most at risk for dragging well, <laughs> and, yes. getting, and getting fatigued. And, and when I'm with you guys, I feel like I need to do my best. And sometimes I do a little more than my best. And I think I'm, that's one reason I'm dragging. But what Aaron, this is something I, I've got to get an answer to and um, I think that when I play faster, I use more wrist. And when I play slower, I use more arm. Huh. Um, but I've noticed like gypsy guitar players, they got a really hard pick. Mm-hmm. And I see them kind of shaking the whole arm. I, I could be wrong about that. Is it necessarily true that when you go faster, you use more wrist and less arm? Or what, what's the deal there? Because when I go slow, in order to measure the time, I'm moving more. I want to chime in, but I want to hear Aaron's answer first. Okay. It depends on... on I don't want to say there's a hard and fast rule on that, but I've, I've watched gypsy guitar players as well and watched them in slow motion. I haven't. And, um, okay, it's, it's pretty interesting. They, they have a completely different approach 
to uh, to flat picking that I don't think works for mountain dulcimer for a number of reasons. Oh, they have their instrument responds in a completely different way than ours does. They have a lot more tension on the string than the dulcimer. More tension um, can but, help with some of that. Yeah, um, they also they the way that they incorporate uh, something called sweet picking, which I think we've talked about on the podcast Not sweet, before, but sweep s w e p. Yeah. A lot of that, so they end up doing a lot more downs, but the way that they've they've trained their right hand, they're able to isolate. If they go across three strings, down, 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 they have a way with their left hand of separating those notes, and all of that is coming from the wrist. Having okay, said that, okay. you, you'll see some gypsy guitar players do like these little bursts of 16th notes or, or triplets, and for some of them, it comes from the elbow, and it hurts to watch. <laughs> so that was the point I wanted to toss in. I okay. think some of that's twitch. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, but twitch, twitch does hurt a little bit. Twitch is hard to, <clears throat> but twitch once your muscles develop can turn into more of a controlled movement because you mm-hmm. could loosen your grip could get looser. I could see all kinds of things happening. Mm-hmm. But but just this is <laughs> two things. One, I thought when you said that every time you were saying sweet s w e e t. Oh, I did not know until Steve said that just you now. But you were, yeah, totally serious. <laughs> so Aaron's you were saying always that, I'm like, like, "That's some sweet picking." <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I, I just learned. Wow, shows you I'm a novice at this thing. But the second part of it is, you know, when you were when you were focusing Steve on, you know, arm or elbow and all this kind of stuff. And when I slow down, it seems to be different. I think this this is what I tell people in Hammer Dulcimer that if you take out of context anything that I say about motion out of context, take it out of context. Then you're not telling somebody accurately because when you're playing slowly, you probably even use your shoulder because you're Mm -hmm. counting and there's more movement just because of what's going on. But as you speed up in particular, if it's at a fast tempo, so there's, there's speeding up for tempo and there's speeding up for ornamentation. Both of those things are going to require a lot less movement. And if you're trying to do the fast stuff, with all the same movement that you have for the large stuff, it's never going to work because there's just mm-hmm. too much movement. I was just listening to Frank Gamboli. I don't know how to say that name. Um, he played with Chick Corea's electric band. I think he's Australian. I could be wrong about all this. and I'm, I'm pretty sure I messed his name up. But he's a sweep-picking master on electric guitar. Mm-hmm. And then I was listening to Alan Holdsworth, which I think he does some of that. I could be wrong. I think um, I've been working on that sweet picking lately. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm a beginner with it. But my my theory is it's harder to be rhythmically accurate with sweet picking. So you have to work a little harder to be accurate with your timing. Alternate mm-hmm. picking, where you're always altering whether you're hitting the strings or not or whatever. I think you get a little more air- accuracy from that rhythmically, but it's harder to play those really fast things with it, maybe. But on the dulcimer, sweet picking with the wide string spacing, that, I don't know. Aaron, would you please yeah. just talk for a minute about this? I want to I learn. think sweep, I think sweet picking, sweep, sweep. picking. <laughs> we, we need pop filters on we the microphones yes, just for it. Just for sweep picking. Just for sweep picking. I think it's a lot harder on the mountain dulcimer than it is on... Uh, I, one one of the things is we have the bass string furthest away from us, so we start on an N. 
Um, whereas most, most instrumentalists are going to start on the down. Um, guitar is so gravity's doing half your work for you. I feel like uh, I have to be a lot more controlled when I practice sweep picking and I can do it one way. I have a hard time turning around and going back the other way still. Um, and I've been working on it for a few years So which now. way? So coming... So going from bass, middle, melody... Is harder. Melody? No, for me, that's easier. That's the way it starts, starting okay. on the lowest note. Yeah, okay. Going, so I'm going in, 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 and then the last note is an out. Now, what some like shred metal guitar players will do is um, uh, turn around and go the other way. So when they get to that melody string... They're going to go, okay, out, 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 melody, middle, bass. And that, for me, is hard, especially staying in time. Mm. Okay. I think we should... I hate to do this. we got to wrap. Well, I can help you do it. I think that it's nice having three people. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. And I would like to see us pick up this geeky right where we start the next one. That sounds good. As we wrap up, though, can... That's just. I just want to say something nice. Uh, a couple of quick things as we're finishing. First off, this is fun to do. Uh, no, we didn't. We should let Aaron talk more. Yeah, we want to let Aaron talk more. <laughs> we had we had a, so much feedback. People wanting to hear the the Dulcimer Geek podcast going again. So that's cool. And we but like no, doing it. It's just like we were on the road so much all of a sudden. Yeah. So we're not going to overpromise, but we're going to try to just keep doing this. We, we like doing fun. this, and we're still friends. Right. In the process of being contemporary, because of when this show airs, we've got to mention Ted Yoder. Oh, and yeah. The cool thing that happened. Oh, around. can we just go oh, ahead my. and let's wrap up with that because it's astounding. Yeah. yeah. That's astounding. Yeah. So good for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just crazy. If you haven't seen Ted's Ted's video that went completely, it, it the viralness of it went viral. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like he hit the ultimate algorithm. So good I even for you, suspect, Ted. see, you know, it, of course, videos go viral on the internet. But I suspect the fact that he's part of this niche community of obsessive dulcimists. Right. I suspect that was a factor, maybe, in some of this, maybe a small factor. But we're talking about, <laughs> I mean, it went from, it, 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 it's Huge. unbelievable, yeah. the numbers. Yeah. And yeah. I'm here looking at it right now. He's up to... Um, so many views. No, I'm not looking at it right now. Well, that's that's okay. Just just know, Ted and anybody who hasn't seen it, good for you, and it's good for everybody. Yeah. So, <clears throat> absolutely. No, I want to tell it, you how it's good. It's oh, okay. So I looked on my YouTube. So if you type dulcimer into Google or YouTube, like if you type dulcimer into YouTube, my whiskey before breakfast video, at least last I checked, was at the top. So I looked at my stats, my play stats, and the day that his video really started to go viral, um, I think I was getting over a thousand extra views on my video a day. So what yeah, this means pe- is people are typing dulcimer in YouTube and doing in a mass. Yeah. Now here's the interesting thing: the the audience retention for me went down big time. 
So people are typing in dulcimer, they're clicking on me, and they're like, oh. no, this is not the droid I'm looking <laughs> at. <laughs> this is not everybody wants to rule the world. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right, so listen, I, w- I want to wrap that up, but that was a big thing. I want to toss in a small one, yeah. just as a reminder of how small things matter. I got a call, I think it was last week, out of the blue from Steve Yulberg, who, in it, to kind of bring her, this back around to the beginning, as we were talking about healthy competition, he has something like dulcimer school as well, and good for him. Right. That uh, cro- dulcimer crossing, he calls it. We were recently See? on stage both talking about our respective schools. Good. That was going to And that's awesome sauce. Steve called just out of the blue to say, hey, I just wanted to call and say thank you for what you guys do for the dulcimer community. That's nice. What other community has that kind of stuff? No, so we're in, you could say we're in direct competition, but I had him on stage with me when I was out in Santa Cruz. And I got to be at a party with him. And yeah, what a treat. It's good stuff. We started talking about competition. I can wrap my end up here by saying, I I generally feel like the competition I experience in the dulcimer world is always healthy. And it gives me a real positive outlook on competition. so I'm I'm thankful because I could end it up I could end up in a punk band and mad at the world. I don't know. You know you don't have to be mad. I to know play you punk. were in a punk band. I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you punks. It was not very competitive either. Can I just say that's some sweet picking. <laughs> <laughs>